On January the 26th, 1936, Josef Stalin and his entourage decided to have a night at the opera. They chose the musical hit of the moment in Moscow that had been hailed by critics and admired by professional musicians. In the first three months of the new year, there were opportunities to see three different productions of Dmitry Shostakovich's new opera, Lady Macbeth of the Mesence District in the Soviet capital. Stalin chose to see the production of the Bolshoi, and the composer was nervously on hand should the great leader wish to see him during or after this hugely successful work. The performance itself went well, but Stalin ominously and his entourage left the theatre before the end of the performance. And two days later came the celebrated article in Pravda, Muddle Instead of Music, some say dictated by Stalin himself. Several theatres have presented to the culturally maturing Soviet public Shostakovich's opera, Lady Macbeth of the Mersense District, as a novelty, as an accomplishment. Fawning musical criticism extols the opera to the heavens, trumpeting its fame. Instead of practical and serious criticism that should insist, assist the composer in his future, the young composer only hears enthusiastic compliments. Then came, in the editorial, The Bombshell. From the very first moment of the opera, the listener is flabbergasted by the deliberately dissonant, muddled streams of sound, snatches of melody, embryos of a musical phrase, drown, struggle-free, and disappear again in the din, the grinding, the squealing. To follow this music is difficult, to remember it impossible. And so on and so forth. The opera was guilty of petty bourgeois formalism, of turning its back on a simple, accessible musical language, of rejecting the genuine, simple art that was demanded by the masses in the Soviet Union. As one of Shostakovich's recent biographers writes, he was down overnight from the summit as the brightest star among young Soviet composers to the abyss as a pernicious purveyor of cultural depravity. The libretto was written by Alexander Preiss and the composer and is based on the novel Lady Macbeth of the Mersense District by the 19th century novelist Nikolai Leskov. And this story of a lonely woman trapped in an unhappy marriage who falls in love with Sergei, one of her husband's workers, and is driven to murder to keep him ought surely to have appealed to Stalin, scourge as he was, <laughs> of the petty bourgeois kulaks to which you might argue the family Ismailova belonged. Stalin indeed had announced the liquidation of the Kulaks on the 27th of December 1929, declaring that we have the opportunity to carry out a resolute offensive against the Kulaks, break their resistance, eliminate them as a class in the Soviet Union. But Katerina Ismailova's story, murdering her father-in-law and her husband, struck no chord with the Soviet dictator. She and the opera were both exiled, with Shostakovich and his heroine both publicly humiliated. Well, we're joined tonight by a quartet of guests. John McMurray, who is now Senior Artistic Advisor here at English National Opera and who was until recently Head of Casting. The soprano, Katrina Shepherd, who is covering the role of Katerina, and Kate Goller, who is a member of the music staff at Eno, are going to perform music from the opera. But our first guest for this new production by Dmitry Chernyakov is Mark Wigglesworth, Eno's music director who conducts tonight's performance. Will you please welcome Mark Wigglesworth.
Mark, a personal note to begin with. This is clearly a piece, an opera, that means a very great deal to you. It means a lot to the whole company, actually. This E&O were the first company to uh, do this piece in this version in, in the West in the, in the early 80s. I was actually privileged enough to be here on the first night and remember it vividly. Uh, it was an amazing production, amazing performance at an amazing artistic time for the company. And then I was very lucky to be able to do one of the revivals of it, to make my debut here in this company with it in about 15 years ago. And uh, although I was always going to do this production and this month as a guest conductor, the fact that events transpired to allow me to do it as music director is something that um, is a real privilege. Why do you think that Stalin objected so strongly to what he saw at the Bolshoi that night? I don't think he... Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the story to upset him, actually. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the music. If you think that Shostakovich's previous opera, The Nose, that's far more challenging musically. Wozzeck was sort of relatively contemporary. Uh, the musical challenges for people were far more significant than this piece, which, if, if you don't know it, you'll hear it tonight, is accessible. It, it's got amazing tunes, amazing choruses, uh, a lot of lightness in it. Um, I think Stalin loved music which is always a very complicated thing for us to handle, how such a monster can genuinely love art. And I think he realized the power of music. And I think being obviously obsessed with power himself, he was terrified at what someone else's power could be in a way. I mean, Stalin could send people off to, to prison and he could murder them and he could ruin their lives, but he couldn't really touch their souls like he knew music could. And I think that was what he felt most threatened by. I, I sometimes wonder whether it's the portrayal of the men in this opera who are, without exception, um, even Sergei, thuggish, brutal, uh, insensitive, um, that perhaps offended him. There he sits with his entourage, which one must presume is entirely made up of men, um, watching a pretty terrifying image of men on the stage. I think he's probably on the men's side, actually. <laughs> I, I think it was seeing the woman as the victim that uh, uh, was something he didn't uh, want to engage with. It, it, the, uh, the role of women in society immediately after the revolution was relatively optimistic, and Stalin put, put an end to that. And the idea that Shostakovich had already proclaimed that he wanted this opera to be the first of four operas about Russian women it's very clear that this piece is about her. It's about what uh, a woman stands, stands for, her right to passion, her right to individuality. And I think um, Stalin felt very threatened by uh, the fact that everybody was identifying with a victim who was also a woman. And we have no doubt that Shostakovich was on Katrina's side. I mean, this is... He is deeply in sympathy with the situation in which he finds himself. He says that he said there are conditions in which murder is not a crime. The original story on which this is based, she kills uh, four people. Uh, Shostakovich decided to cut out the child murder aspect in, in an attempt to, to make her relatively more sympathetic. But ultimately, the way he makes her sympathetic is through the music. It's very music with such um, aching beauty, such lyricism, such tenderness, it is 
going back to the power of music, extraordinary how that can uh, divert your moral compass because she does kill people and yet unquestionably you feel sorry for her and that is an intriguing moral thing for us all to, to uh, engage with. Um, it's the music that we can't abdicate our judgment from. She also, as you say, asserts her right to be an individual, her right to make her choices. That can't have gone down very well uh, with the arch exponent of the collective. Although music brings people together, and, and it, therefore he saw that it was a power that he could use to his advantage, the idea of bringing people together to sympathize with the need to be individual was something that he must have uh, concerned him. Is it important that the piece is set within provincial Russia? Does Shostakovich choose quite carefully uh, this particular piece? Because, in a sense, he's understanding that there is a tradition of art that, that, that sets itself in the provinces which allows you to talk about things. And it goes back to Chekhov. Um, we find it in Gorky. Um, you find it, perhaps, in, in Lermontov. There's a great tradition of wanting to write pieces about the provinces, about provincial life, because you can say things, because everybody knows the provinces are dreadful. You can say things you can't say if you put it in Leningrad or Moscow or a big city. One of the problems I think most people don't know where Mitsensk is, they don't know what it is. It's Surbiton. <laughs> so you have to understand that... That may be a dangerous thought. Look at the audience carefully. <laughs> you, you, you have to understand Lady Macbeth, the whole glamour of that title, the whole, the whole, all our associations with that character of Surbiton. And it's that, it's that um, uh, tension between somebody who is desperate to, to be uh, unprovincial, who feels stifled by the provincialism. And uh, this, there is a lot of that in Russia. How would you characterize the sound world that Shostakovich creates for this piece? What's thrilling about it for, I think, the audience, certainly the performers, is everything is in there. It, it is, I, I would be surprised if you heard anything louder tonight. And, but I'd also like to think that you won't hear anything softer. And, and the range from almost inaudible to almost deafening. And everything in between is an amazing dynamic palette. But in addition to that, there's styles. The music is funny. It is uh, satirical. It's witty. Uh, there are some places where you absolutely understand that he used to play the piano for silent Charlie Chaplin movies. You absolutely get that sort of buzz. And then, of course, there's terrific Russian choral sound. He quotes Strauss. He quotes Wagner. He quotes anybody he wants, frankly, to express uh, as wide an uh, emotional palette as possible. I, I perhaps for the first time heard a great deal more Mahler in, in this opera than I'd heard before. That kind of lyric Mahler, perhaps almost the night music we associate with, the, the, with Symphony 6 and 7. Is that, is that what you hear too? I think what's interesting about doing opera is that your interpretation as a musician and what you bring out of the score instinctively comes from the production style as well. The Pountney production, which, which I did and loved, was very satirical. It was very big on the politics of the piece. And I can't remember exactly how I did it, but it would make sense for me if my vision therefore emphasized the biting, sarcastic satire of it. In this production, which is so much more from the point of view of, of Katerina, of her soul, of her, her passion, her suffering, instinctively, that's going to be the color that you not consciously, but, but inevitably bring out. 
lots and lots and lots of brass. So much brass that they're sitting in the stage boxes. Um, is that a, a challenge to you, to get the kind of balance between this kind of vast uh, pulsating brass and everything else you've got down in the pit? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, uh, we had various experiments. I think they've been, they, we tried them in almost every box but one to work out. And I'm thrilled with what we've um, ended up with. Um, it's, I mean, it, I have, it's, although it's a challenge to get them to play together, um, it's not the most interesting challenge. I just, just have to tear myself to beat, beat four, and, and it's their, they, they will stick together. Shostakovich will never write another opera. That's perhaps the terrible, terrible tragedy of Stalin's intervention, that the man who reveals himself here as an astonishingly accomplished writer of music theatre now won't do any more. But when I'm doing Lady Macbeth, I don't feel I need another one. I mean, of course it's, of course it's tragic, but um, it's also a bit greedy to want more than this. Let's leave Lady Macbeth just for a moment to one side. Um, tell us a bit more about what we can expect and look forward to during your first season as the music director here at English National Opera. What are the other things that we should be uh, whetting our appetites for? Well, we started rehearsing The Force of Destiny already, and to go from uh, Shostakovich's music to Verdi's is, um, on the same day sometimes, is a f fantastic <laughs> privilege. Shostakovich's music takes, takes, takes from you as a performer and as an audience, actually. It's, it's very demanding music, and you come out from the performance very drained. Verdi just gives. He just gives. And, and we're all of us who are involved in both are so loving the sort of enrichment that the humanity of Verdi um, offers. And then uh, I'm doing The Magic Flute um, after Christmas, which uh, is a revival of Simon McBurney's production. I love the fact that in this role I'm able to do have the, uh, such different styles, and to Shostakovich, Verdi and Mozart, to be able to um, um, empower the company to express such variety of, of not only music making, but of, of what they're trying to express is, uh, is wonderful. As a guest conductor, which I did for a long time, you tend to stay on, uh, in, in safe ground for yourself. And uh, to be within a trusting environment of, of people who you respect and, and get to know well as people as well as musicians. The opportunity to take more risks with not only the choices of repertoire you do, but the way you do those pieces is wonderful. Mark Wigglesworth, thank you very much indeed. Stay with us, because I'm sure there may be questions, but thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by the soprano Katrina Shepherd, who is covering the role of Katarina, and by Kate Goller, who is a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you please welcome K Katrina and Kate. Katrina, as others have discovered before you, this is very cruel. You have to speak before you're allowed to sing for your supper. No. <laughs> so, let's talk a little bit about Katarina. Who, as you've been working on this opera, who do you think this woman is? Uh, she's, a, she's been very depressed by her circumstances. She's, um, she's very bored and lonely. She's been married for five years and it's monotonous, her, her life. And she's have you asked yourself why on earth she would have married anybody in this Madoff family? <laughs> uh, she was a poor woman, and I think that that was the only option open 
to her at the time. Um, she, she married a man, it, well in the book he's 20 years older than her, he's been married before. And um, yeah, she, I think it was. Should we see her not only as an emotional prisoner mm. in this house, but almost a physical prisoner too? She's become a piece of property owned by mm. her father-in-law and by her husband. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's well represented in uh, the direction as well. She's very much caged and it feels very trapped. Yeah. And, and, and do you think that Sergei represents something entirely different? I mean, what is the appeal? I think uh, initially maybe a, just a break from a monotony and the, the possibility of love and yeah she's but then she be, she becomes obsessed obsessed by him and that she's again then trapped within that so but it is love not 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 the itch of lust as well <laughs> I think there's a lot of lust in there as well <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a question to it I mean does she Mark was reminding us that she becomes a kind of serial killer, really. Mm -hmm. Does she kill because of Sergei, or be and she's desperate to hold on to him, or does she kill because there is something pleasurable in killing? Uh, I, I think she kills, again, it's her, I think it's the only option open to her, the only option she can see at the time, and she sees these people as obstacles to the life that she wants, a life of possibility for her. In this production, she has to endure, we can see images uh, mm. here on the screen of the production, she has to endure a pretty terrifyingly awful wedding party. Um, you probably would want to kill someone after <laughs> you get to that kind of wedding, maybe. Um, but more seriously, what are the vocal challenges um, of this lead role? Um, I think that it is so passionate, she's such a passionate woman and the drama of it. So I think, uh, you know, as an actress, you want to portray all that, but uh, you have to balance that with vocal, vocal technique uh, as well. And I think just keeping, keeping that in mind that you, it's, it's extraordinary role to play, fantastic to perform. It's, and great stamina, you, I mean, you're on a stage virtually the whole evening. Yeah, yeah, it is, it, yeah, you are, you are, she's, she's it. <laughs> does Shostakovich ask vocally for things that, that, that are particularly difficult, or does it lie quite naturally within the compass of, of the voice? Um, well, I, I love singing, I'm sure all sopranos that uh, get the chance to sing it, love to sing it, it's, it's got so much, so much in it, this, uh, so much you can do. It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful role to sing. What are you and Kate going to do for us? Um, we're going to sing the first act aria, uh, the big the big one. Well, just <laughs> give it a little context. Tell us what what's happening. Okay, yeah. so she um, that day she has met Sergei, uh, but she wasn't, I think, not terribly impressed by him. Uh, and his actions. <laughs> I won't give too much away. Um, uh, and so she's again back in her space and uh, she's thinking and dreaming about a life that she would want. She's, she's speaking about everyone else has love, everyone else has a partner. Why, why have I been left here alone in the cold? And it's her, it just talks about her desperation and, and loneliness. Let's hear the first act. Okay, thank you. Thank you. 
Katrina, Kate, thank you both very much indeed. Um, our final guest is John McMurray, who is English National Opera's Senior Artistic Advisor. Will you please welcome John McMurray. John, tell us a little bit about your new role. When we last talked to you here, you were head of casting, now you have a new job. Tell us a bit about what it is. Um, I was having a drink with a former colleague from another place recently, and we decided the best thing about being an advisor was you could tell people what you thought they ought to do, and if they didn't do it, it was their fault. Um, <laughs> yes, more seriously, it, it's, I'm gonna have a slightly, it's gonna give me a more flexible role within the company. Um, I'm uh, going to spend more time on the casting issues that we know are always very challenging for us. If, for example, we wanted to do Turandot again, finding the singers for that is something that's never easy, particularly some of the particular challenges we face in that repertory. So I'll have more time to do that and the general discovering of new talent, um, particularly from areas we might not necessarily expect uh, to, to see on a regular basis. And I'll have more time for a sort of dramaturgical role. I'll spend more time in the rehearsal room earlier on in the process. It's a, an area that we've maybe not always covered most efficiently before, both in terms of keeping an eye on musical and vocal standards, but also asking questions of creative teams about whether things are really going to work for an audience. Um, you know, that's going to vary with every team depending on the nature of the relationship and the people. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited to be and, doing this. And can you see the outlines of what we might think of as a, a new development in artistic policy emerging already? Uh, those of you who are now working in charge of the company. I, I don't think we're talking about some huge change of direction. And I think in a way the reason why we went down this path was to actually to maintain continuity. There's, there's so much this company does wonderfully well, and we want to carry on doing that. We want to carry on the philosophy of the kind of, of theatrical, ex musical theatrical experience that ENO is, is built to provide, but also taking account of the changed financial circumstances we find ourselves in, and it, that will need some uh, some adaptation in the way we go about things, but I think it's that's an evolutionary process. It's not it's not a, a huge radical change of direction. I suppose one of the reasons, probably why most of us are sitting here in this room, uh, is that we think that he knows a company that believes passionately that music, theatre, opera, call it what you will, is an essential part of any society that would think of itself as, as civilised. I, I wonder how easy it is to make that argument now. It was perhaps easier 20, 30 years ago. I, I'm not sure that, that that really has changed. I think... Um, I think there was as much philistinism in the halls of power. I mean, I remember... No, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> oh, let me tempt you, let me tempt you. <laughs> but I think what is true is that the, 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 the tough economic circumstances in which we all find ourselves, and we're not the only company that... that has, has has some of those pressures, and other companies, I think, are going to find more of those pressures before very much longer. Um, making the argument 
for what this people experience in that auditorium can mean to their lives is maybe even more important in this context, in, 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 a, in a world that, that so many people, not unlike Katerina, find themselves isolated and um, uh, repressed by the social conditions in which they live. And what these people do on stage in the pit can make such an enormous difference to that, to their lives, that we have to fight for that. Mark, I can't resist bringing you in, if I may, at this point. I mean, I imagine this is just as important for you as it is for John, this. I mean, everybody here, I think what defines this company is we all have the same vision. It's a vision that is 100, 100 years old, the, the, the Bayless vision of, of where opera is music and drama, equal, indivisible, and accessible to everybody. I think what the accessibility thing that interests me is it's not my job to determine ticket prices or dress codes. Accessibility for me is not about that. It's about how we communicate the work. That's why we sing in our own language, because we want to communicate these pieces to the people listening to them. And that, as, as John says, uh, they're not policies, they're philosophies. And so we're all, whoever is in the leadership of this company, it, it, I feel, is, is curating uh, and looking after that philosophy f f for a long time. John, back to you. You talked about taking a closer dramaturgical uh, yeah. view of the productions we're doing. I mean, I, there has been sometimes a thought that maybe English companies, not just English National Opera, haven't, as it were, considered the dramaturgical role as seriously as they should have done. There hasn't been, if you like, an intellectual who has minded the artistic conscience of the organisation in the way, say, a dramaturg would in a German mm. house. Are we moving towards that? Um, I can remember when I worked at Covent Garden back in the 1980s. Um, it, it, dramaturgy was a word that wasn't really allowed to be used, e even though some of the functions I found myself carrying out then. Um, I think I think it's I think whatever you call it, there's a job there which it's really important to do, and I think it's absolutely within within the character and ethos of ENO particularly to take that function seriously. And it can be done different ways. It, it will always be done different ways with different productions, with different groups of people. But the, there is a part, absolutely, for us to play, I believe. Let's turn to, to casting. Mm. Um, we were talking before the audience came earlier this evening about a, a period in which the company managed to put on stage, the obvious example would be Reginald Goodall's Ring with John Cock, with John, um, Name's not out of my head, never mind. Um, uh, uh, an extraordinary ensemble of singers yeah. who could almost interchange, who had a kind of instinctive life and who belonged not only to, to Wagner but to other productions too. Is that idea of an ensemble of singers within a company possible any longer? Um, I think the financial and social circumstances at the time have gone. And um, you have to remember at that time the company was probably performing 26 titles a season. It was doing a lot of revivals. It was doing bring-backs in the course of the season with multiple casts, not always as well rehearsed as we would today want to rehearse them. Um, and 
could support a music staff that could prepare those people. And a number of those singers who were um, very prominent in the company in that period would now struggle because, frankly, their, their musical skills could be very limited. And companies no longer have the resources to devote to that. Also, one of the consequences of singers perhaps being more uh, flexibly trained is they have a greater desire to go to other places. They're less willing to stay in one environment all the time. That said, what I think we do have here, and we've worked hard to cultivate, is a, is a kind of looser ensemble of singers um, who come as guest artists but feel a strong connection to the company and want to return um, on a regular basis. Because, and they come and work here for far less money than they get pretty well everywhere else they work, but they come here because the working conditions, the atmosphere, um, is such the quality of the stage management, the quality of the company management here. It's so high, and singer after singer, international bass singers, say to me, we come here because we enjoy it in a way we don't in some apparently more prestigious theatres. One way of ensuring that loyalty, but also one way of developing a sense perhaps of a, a, an ensemble, is to invest substantially in younger singers. Do you feel that you've got the kind of resources at the moment that you can develop a kind of younger singers program for English National Opera that will create a generation who will have this, this kind of first loyalty to the company? I think our track record on this is actually very good. Um, the ENO was the first British opera company to have a young artist program, which was founded, I think, in 98. Um, when I came here in 2006, we still had... A, a, a scheme that was run on on that basis. We've gradually changed it, and over the last five or six years, when we've moved to the Harwood Artist Scheme, I think the standard of singer involved in that has risen, and I think we're seeing in where those singers are now going and where they're now appearing that, that we've provided a very, very valuable developmental um, uh, basis for them. And it's one of the, in, frankly, one of the most rewarding parts of, of, of my job. You know, to, to, I look at people like uh, Sophie Bevan or now Rianne Lois and what we saw in them and what we were able to offer, I think, the right roles at that point in their career. And to see them grow and flourish and also see a connection and a loyalty back to the company. There has also to be a willingness on the part of the singers to collaborate yeah. in this process and yeah. that presumably is also not always as easy now as it might have been in an earlier period. Um, possibly. I suspect as always been there are people who are drawn to this kind of work and there are others who experience it but want something different from life. When you're auditioning, when you're casting, um, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a voice? Are you looking for someone with the capacity to use that voice to create character? Are you looking for someone who's going to sit and work within the production that you're, you're casting? What are the kind of principles it, it, in your mind? It's, in some ways it's all those things, but I would say, it, when I get asked this question, you know, when we're talking to young artists or whatever in various, various places, I, I've more and more come to the view that, that to reach the highest level, the sound on its own is not enough. You need other things. But if you don't have the sound 
all the other things will never compensate. So that, what you hear in the first 30 seconds of an audition will tell you a huge amount about whether this is something to pursue or not pursue. This is the spirit, I think, of an earlier member of the company <laughs> who suddenly plunged. We shall continue. Yes. It happened last week, too. Clearly, there is a ghost in the house. Um, when, you, when you are <coughs> um, casting, I mean, do you have to listen carefully to what conductors, to what producers, directors say? Or, in the end, do you make your decision? Are you the kind of objective voice? One of my colleagues is standing in the back laughing very, very, <laughs> very, very, very at this point. Um, you know, it varies enormously. There are, there are directors and conductors we work with who are incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, um, David Alden, who I've known, I used, I used to manage in my artist manager days, we've known each other a long time, and you, often we could cast an opera in 20 minutes because we knew exactly the singers we were talking about. Um, other times when we did the Convictioni Traviata, um, I spent quite a long time talking with him, and he said to me, he said, I don't know the singers you will use. You know now the kind of things I want. Go away and do it. You know, don't. There's no point talking to me further. And that worked out pretty well. Um, and there's a whole range of, of stages in between. What is actually difficult is dealing with a very small number of directors and conductors who think they know more than they actually do. <laughs> I'm very tempted to ask more there, but I can't. <laughs> uh, what I will say is, 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 is what happens if something goes terribly wrong? It does go wrong. Sometimes the singer doesn't quite. And often you're making a decision about a role, years perhaps, yeah. prior and, to the... Yeah. And there are disappointments in this, the things you, you hope will will come to work and um, things that don't. I do remember, though, talking many years ago with Graham Clark um, in, in his dressing room in Bayreuth. And he was talking about Wolfgang Wagner, who was at the height of his powers then um, in, in the early 80s. And he said one of the great things about working there was that Wolfgang, once he'd made a decision, backed that decision to the hilt. He might not bring you back the following year if he thought he hadn't worked, but he would never give ground on criticizing an artist who he had committed to engaging. And I think that's kind of, to a degree, that's the uh, what you have to do. I mean, occasionally you find yourself in a situation where something is failing so badly, you have to make a change. But I, I am strongly in the view that there's no point sacking someone unless you're absolutely certain you have a replacement who will be better in those circumstances. Um, a difficult question, and subjective, but has there been a moment in, in your long and distinguished career casting when you've suddenly heard a singer sing and every single bell and light in the room has rung and gone on and you've known something really remarkable was happening? Um, yeah, I think, I think you, you know, sometimes that can, can be almost at, at a last moment thing. I mean, I think one of the most... I think casting Corinne in Travia, Corinne Winters in Traviata, and you know it's topical because she's just gone on stage this week in in Bohem rehearsals. I think that was that was something very special that that we saw in her, and, and actually that was a relatively late piece of casting, and to fit that. On the other hand, uh, Leah Crocetto, who I thought was amazing as Desdemona here, I had first heard I think 
six years before that in San Francisco and had thought, that's a voice I want to be able to put on stage in London. And it, it took a while to find the right thing. Mm -hmm. But yes, you can have that moment. And there must be an extraordinary sense of excitement that you want to come back and tell all your colleagues about what you've yeah. done. Yeah. I mean, I heard a girl, a 19-year-old girl, this summer singing uh, Ginevra in a, in a, in a young art, in a, a summer school production of, of, of Ariadante in um, I, um, upstate New York. It was the most remarkable thing I have ever seen. It was not just that she was a wonderful singer, but at 19, she had that thing that, that special performers have, that she seemed able to make time go at what she needed it to be. Surrounded by more experienced people, and then you see someone like that, and you think, you know, what, where did that come from? So, Mark, we can look forward to Ariadne and your Ladies and gentlemen, we have a few minutes in hand. If you would like to ask any of our distinguished guests questions about the things we've talked about tonight's performance that awaits you, lucky you, uh, or indeed casting or the po policy of the companies, it's slowly emerging. Please do. There's a roving microphone. Put your hand up. Catch my eye. We have a question there, number one. Um, one of the reasons I'm here tonight is because an opera by Shostakovich is my cup of tea. And I value tremendously what you do here because you do have, one can hardly say a modern opera, but for many people, that would be something that might go in inverted commas as being difficult. There is a commitment, is there, to carry on doing that kind of work. New work is expensive, and the question gets asked, can we afford it? And our answer is always the same, we can't afford not to do it. It's, uh, it's the, it engages the audience and the performer in the present tense. There's no nostalgia involved in either the listening or the creating of it. it without regenerating the work itself, the, the art form will not survive, and, and we all have a passion and a responsibility for that. And we want to do, we can't, we can't do as much as we want, but nobody can, but we will never um, negate that. To call it a responsibility sounds like we don't enjoy doing it, it's actually not, it's a responsibility and a privilege to work on new pieces. And they're a lot easier than the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen at the back, first, yeah. <clears throat> Could Mark Wigglesworth say something about the impact <clears throat> of the devastating, that the devastating criticism after Lady M had on Shostakovich's subsequent composing career? It's fascinating. Stalin basically forced him to write music that was popular that was accessible. His genius was to combine that ability to be every man with something very unique and special. And music is a language that you can't translate, but everybody knows what it means. So the ability in music to be ambiguous for your own benefit. You can, you can be provocative in music, you can be 
uh, challenging, you can be threatening, and yet you haven't used any of those words, and so you can survive. A lot of Shostakovich's friends in, in other art forms, the more literal art forms, ended up, if they were lucky in Siberia, or, or worse. So he was able to um, uh, use music to maintain his own identity within the, 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 the uh, imposition of, of Stalin. What I find fascinating is, especially with the story that you, that you know of this piece and how it forced him to change, is what if Stalin had not forced him to go down that route? And uh, the p next piece he, he uh, published was his fifth symphony, even though he hadn't published a fourth symphony. His decision to call it a fifth symphony made it very clear that there was another one there that he was, that he was hiding. Um, that is famously called a, a Soviet artist's um, reply to just criticism. He didn't actually say that, but the point is he was able to answer Stalin's uh, provocation without um, uh, betraying his own um, soul. I'm getting, I'm afraid, signs from the back saying that we've run out of our allotted time, but the bar staff wish to take over what is their space in part. Um, so, can I say some thank yous? Uh, firstly, to all of you for being here and uh, for being a, a terrific audience, and I'm sorry there wasn't time for more questions. Um, you're sitting on little slips of paper which will tell you about the other pre-performance talks this season. Do please have a look, and I hope we shall be able to welcome many of you to them. But now, can I, on all your behalf, thank our guests, our guests, our four guests, Mark Wilsworth, John McMurray, Katrina Shepherd, and Kate Goller. Thank you all very much. <laughs>